Welcome back to Iconography, a podcast dedicated to the geography of icons, real and imagined. Last time we talked, our focus was on Richard the Lionheart, a tax-hungry, absentee monarch and the bloodthirsty perpetrator of a massacre, who happens to have become history's ultimate perfect jock older brother. Brother, you have surrounded your given name with a foul stench. From this day forth, all the toilets in this kingdom shall be known as John's. This episode, it's time for his little brother John to take the spotlight. I'm definitely putting myself in a generational, probably national, box here, but John is, to me, the Louis Stevens to Richard's perfect Donnie Stevens, but with murder instead of pranks. People, this is not a democracy! Maybe I'll stick with last week's mismatched brothers analogy. Richard is to John as Thor is to Loki. This is so unlike you, brother. So clandestine. Are you sure you wouldn't rather just punch your way out? If you keep speaking, I just might. Robin Hood films have told us King John is a tax-hungry, bloodthirsty villain of the First Order. A man against whom all the peasants could rally. And down with that scurvy Prince John! Selfish, cowardly, and oh, so punchable. But as we saw last episode, eight centuries is a lot of time for someone's legacy to morph and change. Is this another case of a Plantagenet brother being forced into a role that would be unfamiliar to his contemporaries? Could the man who gave the world its treasured Magna Carta have really been that bad? Spoiler alert. Yeah, he, he could be. How could that be? Issued on June 15, 1215 by King John and reissued many times in later years by his descendants as a sort of renewed vow, the Magna Carta is this foundational document in the push for equality and civil liberty. It's guarantee that no free man shall be imprisoned or stripped of his rights except by the lawful judgments of his equals has echoed through history. Without it, would there be a Bill of Rights? Would the Universal Declaration of Human Rights even exist? Does Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain? (laughs) When Carolyn and I went to visit Stonehenge, this was back when there was only one episode of Iconography, I was surprised and delighted to find one of four remaining copies of the original 1215 Charter, that's the one that John issued, waiting just around the corner from our Airbnb in Salisbury. And when it did, the documents were all destroyed, except one you're looking at, and the three others... Sadly, we we did miss the opportunity by about five years to see the Magna Carta sitting next to the original artwork for Magna Carta Holy Grail, Jay-Z's most recent album. I guess we'll just have to catch the album when it uh, hangs out with the Holy Grail. Holy Grail. Now I got tattoos on my body, psycho bitches in my lobby. I got haters. 
Pictures in the paper, photo shoots with paparazzi. Can't even take my daughter for a walk. See him by the corner. Sorry, that might have been a bit too mean to hold. Considering his body of work, it's been a bit too easy to clown on Jay these past few years after Tidal and Lemonade and the elevator video with Solange. And that all sort of started with this stupid Samsung commercial for Magna Carta Holy Grail. Put that on my own July 4. We don't have any rules. Everyone's trying to figure it out. That's why the internet is like the Wild West. The Wild Wild West. Revere me, it says. We need to write the new rules. Go get a Galaxy S3, Galaxy S4, Galaxy Note 2 so you can hear me sooner. Oh. <laughs> what speakers was it? I think it blew speakers. Make no mistake, Jay-Z may have been selling some line about the Magna Carta being important to him because of social justice, but it's no accident that his surname is Carter, and Magna Carta translates to the Great Charter. It's sort of tough to tell if the Dean of Salisbury, the very reverent June Osborne, was crossing her fingers behind her back when she said, We are delighted that Jay-Z has chosen Salisbury Cathedral, home to the finest of the four surviving original 1215 Magna Carta, as the location for the global premiere of his artwork for Magna Carta Holy Grail. I'll give the dean the benefit of the doubt she is a servant of God after all, and say she probably was delighted, regardless of whether she thinks this album even deserves to be in the same conversation as the blueprint, because it means that the Magna Carta still holds sway over the people of the world. We know how important Magna Carta and all it represents is to people across the globe. The ideals it embodies are still relevant today, Jay-Z, through his album, is creating a huge awareness of this historic document and its modern significance to a huge audience in the run-up to its 800th anniversary in 2015. The Magna Carta gets a lot of starring roles that keep it feeling young and relevant. It's the subject of frequent shout-outs, both from political figures like Nelson Mandela, who referenced it in the famous speech he gave at his trial in 1961, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. And from musicians like Jay-Z. In 1927, America's March King, John Philip Sousa, surely the Jay-Z of his day, wrote the barn burner you're listening to now, at the behest of the International Magna Charta Day Association, which was lobbying at the time for June 15th to be a yearly celebration. Thirteen years later, in a vastly different world, Kurt Weill, a Jewish composer who had fled Nazi Germany in 1933, wrote the stirring Ballad of the Magna Carta in collaboration with lyricist Maxwell Anderson. Befitting the international mood in 1940, this occasionally comic cantata in which John actually lets out a mellifluous and very musical evil laugh takes a sudden turn at the end. Hurtling forward through the centuries and grabbing you viscerally by the collar. Because a law is not a law when it's a ruling made by 
executive, arrived at by a commission or a committee, drawn up by a secret board or council, prepared by a party caucus or a kitchen cabinet. For Sousa and the Magna Charta Day Brigade, 1215 was the foundation stone for the great American experiment in democracy and freedom. And considering how swell that was going in 1927, a birthday party and a pat on the back were in order. For Vial and Anderson, on the other hand, 1215 was a bracing reminder that even in 1940, the job wasn't done and that there would always be a King John drastic action needed to be taken to counteract the will of the few overruling the will of the many. Resistance unto tyrants is obedience to God. Resistance unto tyrants is obedience to God. And that's a lot of weight for a few very old, very frail strips of calfskin to carry. We only have four surviving copies of the original charter that King John issued. We'd probably have more, except John went around destroying all the copies he could. This is maybe the most important thing to know about John and the Magna Carta. He did not want to give rights to his subjects. He was forced to. So he did, with his fingers crossed behind his back. The Magna Carta has been a remarkably durable symbol, considering how short-lived it was during its first run. It was comically short-lived, or at least I thought so when I laughed my way through the informational placard at Salisbury Cathedral. Magna Carta did not have a promising start. King John clearly had no intention of keeping the promises he'd made in the Charter. He immediately appealed the Pope, who an old document was like, nah. Signed at Runnymede on June 15th, 1215, the Charter was only on the books until August 24th of that same year. That is when Pope Innocent III, receiving John's complaint that he'd given this oath under duress, issued a papal bull declaring the charter null and void. He said, eh, don't you worry, Johnny. I've got your back. It's like it never happened. Wink. Which is once again hilarious because six years before Runnymede, that very same Pope Innocent had excommunicated that very same king from his church. John's kingdom was under interdict for years, meaning basically no church services could happen, no church bells could ring, no consecrated burials could occur. For the second time in 40 years, Rome and the Plantagenets were at odds over the Archbishop of Canterbury. When Richard's appointee to the position, Hubert Walter, passed away in 1205, the monks at Canterbury did not follow the typical tradition and consult the king before electing their man, Reginald. John was pissed because he wanted his buddy John de Grey to be the archbishop because yeah, appointing a friend had worked out so well for Henry II and Thomas Becket's friendship. So this disagreement gets all the way up to the Pope, who looks at the two candidates on offer and chooses... Stephen Langton, who was English but had been living in Rome for a long time. John throws... A massive hissy fit, and he kicks all the monks of Canterbury out of England and takes all their possessions into his custody. So Innocent must have thought, oh, I'm punishing that rascally King John by putting England under interdict. But after an initial temper tantrum, John realizes that there are a lot more churches in England. And, you know, as long as they're not doing anything, he can seize their possessions as well. Now, this goes on long enough that it ends up getting John kicked out of the church altogether, which 
I would like to remind you, did not even happen to John's father, Henry, who had basically had his Archbishop of Canterbury murdered. So how did a man who was still excommunicado in 1213 get so buddy-buddy with the Pope by 1215 that he could call in a favor of the magnitude of, hey, could you, like, cancel the oath I made to give rights to all the freemen in my kingdom? In 1213, surrounded on all sides by subjects who wanted him dead, and with a nearly unbeatable French rival knocking him silly, John made nice with Rome. He promised England as a feudal vassalage to the Vatican, which meant that Innocent wasn't doing his buddy John a solid when he declared the charter null and void of all validity forever, seriously forever, writing, We utterly reject and condemn this settlement, and under threat of excommunication, we order that the king should not dare to observe it. The honest truth? England was Pope Innocent III's newest toy, thanks to John, and he wasn't going to let his newest vassal sign away his privileges. These sorts of machinations make 13th century alliances seem as inconstant and fickle as those on a typical season of Survivor. Philip II and John made peace multiple times during John's reign, but whether at peace or out of it, they were pretty much constantly at war. The Magna Carta itself was essentially a peace treaty meant to stop a civil war in England, and it worked for a few weeks. Alliances meant very little. But the reverse was true, too. Your enemy one week might be your saving grace the next. As we saw last week when Richard returned from crusade and tutted, oh, you poor thing, when he was confronted with his backstabbing brother, forgiveness was always possible and remarkably easy to come by at the turn of the 13th century. Most of John's closest allies through his reign, his mother Eleanor, the knight William Marshall, the Pope, were people who had held him disdainfully at arm's length not too long before. I don't think this was because the people of the 1200s were more inherently forgiving than we are. It's just that power grabs and alliance shifts were expected behavior in a world where inheritance was everything, as we heard last week from Henry II. Tell me all three want the crown, I'll tell you. It's a feeble prince that doesn't. They may snap at me and plot, and that makes them the kind of sons I want. There was pretty much no action that you could perform that would stand in the way of an eventual truce. Except for killing your rival. That one would make it really hard to kiss and make up. And that is likely, we don't know the full story, but it is likely what John did. I want you to imagine a near dystopic future in which everyone in the British royal family is wiped out Anastasia style, except for Prince Harry and his older brother's adorable little son, George. I'm not advocating for this by any means. I would be devastated by this, but just thought exercise with me. It's a few years from now, so Harry is in his mid-30s and George can't do long division yet. George should technically be the heir over Harry. He is the son of Charles's eldest son. But this is a weird future where the rules aren't quite what they are now. Everyone knows that George should be king, but he's prepubescent and Harry is a grown-ass man. So people take sides. This is the situation King John found himself in upon his brother Richard's death. Richard, he'd been unable to produce a legitimate heir of his own, but... I did lie last week when I said that middle brother Geoffrey was completely insignificant. 
because before Jeffrey died, he left a little gift inside his wife Constance of Brittany. And that gift, for John, was a war for succession with a 12-year-old. And look, that kid, Arthur, he wasn't perfect. He was captured by John's forces trying to kidnap his own grandmother, for example, because, you know, Eleanor of Aquitaine hadn't had enough drama in her life already. She needed teenage grandchildren laying siege to her home. But in spite of that, Arthur certainly did not deserve what he got. Even by the standards of 1203, which were pretty murdery standards, taking out your nephew and the heir to the throne... Yeah, that was seen as incredibly poor form. Remember, Richard had been a prisoner, and fanciful yarns about lion battles aside, he was treated like, well, like a king. Accounts differ as to what exactly happened between Arthur and John, though all agree that John was not a kind prison warden. Some say John did the deed himself, drunkenly beating his nephew to death, and some say that he had someone else kill Arthur under his orders. Perhaps, as happens in Shakespeare's play, John gave the order which went unfollowed, and Arthur subsequently perished in some other mysterious way. King John is one of Shakespeare's most obscure, least performed plays. It wasn't known in the Bard's time at all, and it's really only had one moment in the spotlight, and that was catching fire in the Regency era and writing King John's addition to the Robin Hood mythos in Ivanhoe out through the Victorian era. But if it is known at all today, it tends to be known for this really striking monologue from Constance, Arthur's mother. Here's the actress Camilo Sullivan as Constance, reacting to Cardinal Pandolf's line, Lady, you utter madness and not sorrow. Thou art not holy belie me so. I am not mad. This hair I tear is mine. My name is Constance. I was Geoffrey's wife. Young Arthur is my son. he is lost. I am not mad. I would to heaven I were, for then tis like I should forget myself. If there is a club that you don't want to be in as an English monarch, that would be the Nephew Murderers Club. Of all the names a British monarch could have, and Henry, Edward, William, and George are popular choices if you're considering giving birth to one, though I would advocate that it's time for another Victoria, there are only two which we probably won't see again for a very long time. Ironically, Richard and John, though not because of Richard the Lionheart. These are like the retired jersey numbers of monarchial nomenclature, except their discontinuation is not an honor. I just don't think that anyone wants their child to be Richard IV or John II of England. Richard III, who might have murdered the princes in the tower, certainly a subject for another episode, he's seen a reappraisal of sorts since the 1951 Josephine Tay detective novel The Daughter of Time inspired a new generation of Ricardians, folks who believe that Richard is innocent. But John 
There's just too much going against him. We're not going to wake up one day and think, oh, John was just misunderstood. For my part, it's not about whether John killed Arthur or not. I don't have enough evidence to try him on that charge. For me, it's about what he did to people who thought he'd killed Arthur. William and Matilda de Browse were powerful nobles and favorites of King John. William had been John's right-hand man during the whole Arthur affair. If anyone knew what had happened to Arthur, he was the one. And the years following Arthur's death saw William grow suspiciously flush with titles and lands. And then, in 1208, John suddenly switched tacks from keeping de Browse close and patting him on the back to stabbing him in it. He wanted to take William's eldest son hostage. It's a pretty common practice in those days. And he's claiming that William wasn't keeping up with his debts to the crown. But the word on the street is that Matilda de Browse has been making snide remarks about what you-know-who had done to little Arthur. And you-know-who does not like that at all. Now, upon being asked to turn her own child over to John, Matilda purportedly confirms those rumors, and according to Roger Wendover, she replies with all the sauciness of a woman that John had basely murdered his nephew, whom he ought to have kept in honorable custody. Now the DeBrowse clan has to go on the run, and eventually John catches Matilda and her son, and he has them in his custody. John, who I hope you're beginning to understand is a man you would never want to be your prison warden, starves the mother and son. Not that this should happen to anyone, ever. But remember, this is one of the most powerful families in England, known across the realm as favorites of King John. And here they are, dead in the dungeon of Corf Castle, the boy with teeth marks on his body where his mother has tried to gnaw his flesh. So, yes, John was a real piece of work. No bones about it. But what I'm trying to get at is this. Lots of royals have been real pieces of work. John's own brother Richard was one. And they haven't ended up portrayed as thumb-sucking psychopaths in Disney films. Taxes! <laughs> taxes! Beautiful, lovely taxes! <laughs> there is a vast gulf between how Richard and John are remembered. The romantic version pins this to a major personality discrepancy. Richard, chivalrous, noble, and brave. John, conniving, dastardly, and weak. But what I hope I showed last episode was that Richard was not the golden boy he's cracked up to be. He was good at war, and John was bad at it, but being good at war isn't always the best testimonial, depending on whose team you're on. The real difference between the brothers probably had less to do with chivalry and more to do with distance. Absence, you may have heard, makes the heart grow fonder. Richard, for many reasons, had been largely absent from England for most of his ten-year reign. There was the crusade and the imprisonment, but there was also the fact that Henry II left him a kingdom that covered Normandy, Brittany, Anjou, Aquitaine, just a whole lot of France. He could roam free. He didn't have to crash on anyone's couch for so long that they got tired of him and asked him when he was going to start paying rent, you know? So even if Richard was a jerk, and even if he overtaxed, he never overstayed his welcome. 
John was a jerk and overtaxed, and also, he definitely overstayed his welcome on England's couch. His poor track record in battle meant that not too long after he'd killed his nephew and officially raised any doubts about who should be inheriting the crown, he went back and squandered just about every part of his inheritance that wasn't the crown. Let's look back and see how that happened. John had made peace with King Philip II of France in 1200, and in doing so he took a pretty raw deal to avoid finishing the battle that his brother had started and very nearly won. This included pulling the same, oh, I'm your feudal vassal, take my money routine that he ended up using on the Pope a few years later. Now, King Philip would have probably found a reason to break his truce with John and start gobbling up French land anyway. He slurped his food too loud, or he smelled bad. But the reason he chose involved John's decision to marry Isabella of Angoulême, a 12-year-old who was already betrothed to Hugh of Lusignan. Hugh was a rabble-rousing Aquitanian subject who supported Arthur's claim to the throne. Now, those are both eyebrow-raising facts, 12 years old and already betrothed. And they would have been, if not unheard of back in the 1200s, then pretty scandalous. John was not shy about sleeping with other nobles, significant others. It was a known thing. But this was essentially seen as a business arrangement, part of hospitality, weirdly. The nobles would get something in return, and some nobles would actually turn the tables on this weird business transaction and offer John Livestock not to sleep with their wives every night he was in town. So Hugh should have gotten a pretty sizable severance package for having his fiancée swiped, but John, who did not like the cut of Hugh's jib, refused any compensation. So Hugh of Lusignan goes running to King Philip, who declares John a contumacious vassal. I love this. This sounds like an absolutely delightful insult, like uh, what Loki should have called Black Widow after this. You mewling quim. You contumacious vassal. But what it meant was a little more boring than that. It meant that John was completely out of line, and his lands in France, Normandy, Anjou, Brittany, Aquitaine, were no longer his. Philip came to get them, and it became clear why John had conceded so much to make peace in 1200. He was really bad at war, as bad at it as his brother had been good at it. John had one brief shining moment when he captured Arthur and Hugh, that time that they were banging on Eleanor's door trying to kidnap a 78-year-old grandmother. But John, ugh, John, rather than using Arthur as a bargaining chip, just about the world's best possible bargaining chip, John goes ahead and allows Arthur's death. Now, after this, many of John's supporters, well, they become his enemies. And before long, John is ruling a kingdom that includes only England and a small pocket of Aquitaine. We'll get to the long-term benefits of this later, but in the short term, this was devastating to Anglo-Norman culture and led pretty directly to John's subjects forcing him to sign the Magna Carta. You see, it wasn't just a king of England like Richard who moved freely between England and Plantagenet territories in France. Most of the barons did this as well. It had been almost 150 years since William of Normandy had conquered England and created this cross-channel society where it was normal to have an estate in England and an estate in Normandy. 
This is the remarkable thing about the whole idea of Robin Hood in the time of John. It wasn't the poor that hated John. It was the rich. John did levy exorbitant taxes to finance his military campaigns, but they weren't milked from the poor Saxon serf who had no income of his own. They were leached from a Norman baron who had to pay outlandish fees for just about everything. You want to inherit your title from your deceased father? Well, pay up. And these fees aren't new, they're far from it, but under John, they skyrocket, and he actually expects them to be paid on time. So everything you think you know about who King John's critics are, erase it. They weren't the 99% banding together in Sherwood Forest against the 1%. That was the invention of our friend from two episodes ago, Joseph Ritson. We Saxons aren't going to put up with these oppressions much longer. You're not. The people at Runnymede forcing an oath out of the king were the 1%. They had lost their summer houses in Normandy, they had to hand over their wives every time the king came in town, and they kept throwing money at military campaigns that failed spectacularly. They were so peeved they just they took London. And the charter they willed into existence reflects this. We want a council to represent which people. We want a free church with a free steeple. We want you to stop stealing our sons and holding them hostage like you have done. There's vital stuff here that you've got to give us. There's also some stuff about fishing in the rivers. So stop. Zoom forward a few hundred years. The founding fathers of the United States have caught their fair share of flack for not anticipating a world of semi-automatic weapons when they insisted everyone should have a right to bear arms. They missed on some things, like how many people they truly thought were created equal and deserved life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But on the whole, I'm going to give them credit, their work has been remarkably durable. They took the long view. They put aside the grievances that they had that day, and they worked to build a system that could still be used two centuries later. I know the action in the street is exciting, but Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting, I've been reading and writing. We need to handle our financial situation. Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? Now, the framers of the document that inspired them were a bit more short-sighted. The one clause in the Magna Carta that we still talk about when we talk about the Magna Carta is not free of the semantic ambiguity that trickled down to Thomas Jefferson and his all men. Clause 39 of the 1215 Charter, one of history's most celebrated sentences, isn't quite as triumphal as it seems at first blush. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned, it says. Certain clauses in the Magna Carta, I should say, do apply to women. They did exist. The document acknowledges them. Clause 8, which says a widow won't be forced to remarry, is like, ladies, we got you. While Clause 54 says accusations of murder which come from a woman don't actually count. Sorry, ladies, we don't, we don't got you that much. Not enough for Clause 39 to apply to them, certainly. And then there's all the not-free men, all those serfs in England. The barons are not at Runnymede for them. They are at Runnymede to ensure hostages are returned. That's actually what Clauses 58 and 59 guarantee. The Magna Carta's request that the son of Lewin and the sisters of Alexander, king of Scotland, be returned. These are not the laws that have echoed through the ages, you know. Same goes for Clause 50, which essentially says, we don't like Gerald of Athy or his kin, and they can't hold office ever again. And then it proceeds to list out all of their names. So 
Considering the one-time only band-aid quality of the Magna Carta, how is it that we end up with it meaning so much to us today? Well, that comes down to a man who's come up a few times across the Richard and John episodes, William Marshall, the Earl of Pembroke. William, against all the odds, stuck it out with John until the very end, and it had not been that long since he'd been hiding out in Ireland stuck on John's bad side, as everyone was at some point. But William had come back to see his king through the second major civil war that he saw in his lifetime. The first one between Stephen of Blois and John's grandmother Matilda had occurred when William was a little child. William had actually ended up as one of those hostage children that we talked about earlier, a captive of Stephen. Back to 1215. When the Pope rejects the Magna Carta in August, John's civil war kicks back up again, and it continues until October of 1216. The barons are so desperate to be rid of this guy that they actually invite the French prince Louis over to invade their country and claim the throne, which is a really drastic step. And Louis does this. When John dies of dysentery in October, London belongs to a French prince, and the crown, the actual thing John wears on his head, it is literally underwater. It's lost during a catastrophic march, which is just a really fine symbol of John's rule. If John had lived just a little bit longer, Louis would likely have become King of England. Think about that. But as soon as John is dead, it's like everyone wakes up from this dream. Before John, a preteen king had not seemed like such a hot idea. But now, a nine-year-old king sounds like a dream. So John's son, Henry III, takes the throne with William Marshall as his regent. Now, William is a really savvy player of the Game of Thrones. He is he's essentially Ned Stark if Joffrey had not been such a murderous little creep. Now, he looks at the situation around him and, and he thinks, in order to win over the barons who still might want Louis on the throne, I need to reissue the Magna Carta. But he does something really smart. He cuts out all the junk about hostages and Gerard's kin who we don't want to have offices anymore. William's new charter is a lean, mean document that, honestly, it transforms forevermore just how much power a king's enablers are going to allow him to have. So when it comes to the Magna Carta, we, we really do have William Marshall to thank, but I, we can't cut out John. We, we have to also thank John. I'm not the first person to say this, far from it, but it needs saying anyway. John had a way, way bigger impact on England's future than his more beloved brother did. Richard, for all the incredible action he saw in his life, he essentially left the crown in the state he found it in. John lost nearly everything, including his right to rule absolutely. Losing stings a lot when it happens, but loss can be a good thing. Winston Churchill thought so. When the long tally is added... It will be seen that the British nation and the English-speaking world owe far more to the vices of John than to the labours of virtuous sovereigns. For it was through the union of many forces against him that the most famous milestone of our rights and freedom was in fact set up. It wasn't just rights and freedom, either. According to Bill Bryson, it was the English language, too, and, and the very notion of Englishness. Several events helped. One was the loss of Normandy to the French crown by the hapless King John in 1204. 
isolated from the rest of Europe by the English Channel, the Norman rulers began to think of themselves not as displaced Frenchmen, but as Englishmen. John's great gift to England was sucking. Sucking so hard that he made it so future kings would only have England to focus on. And sucking so hard that he made it so future kings would need the say of the people to imprison or tax. I think for that we could all afford to give John a hearty thank you. John, thank you for being so bad at your job that you inspired equality, human rights, and freedom. All right, that's all we've got for this episode, and all we've got for our three-part series on Robin Hood, King Richard, and King John. Thanks, turn of the 13th century. It's been real. Next episode, we'll be returning to some events that someone you know might have actually been alive for. I'm debating between looking at Paddington Bear or Dunkirk. Honestly, I'll probably do both back-to-back. If you like what you've been hearing and want to make sure others will be able to hear about Paddington or Dunkirk, Please retweet Iconography Share on Facebook. Reach out and tell a friend on, I don't know, Snapchat, Reddit. <laughs> and do be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It's the best way to help the Iconography audience grow. Until next time. We'll find a way to make him pay and steal our money back. A minute before he knows we're there, old Rob will snatch his underwear.